0: The reading can be found on page 873. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his thorns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouse like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth, to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for forty-two months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a man, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, least on his behalf, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number... His number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Right. Well, let's pray as we come to this passage together and ask for God's help. Father, you are the author of scripture, the ultimate author. And so we look to you uh, to help us as the ultimate interpreter of it. Please help us to understand and to uh, have insights this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I attended an event marking the 180th anniversary of Anglican ministry in Hong Kong. So 180 years ago the first Anglican uh, ministry was established here and we marked it this week on Tuesday, Monday, Monday it was. It was a grand event, there were probably a few thousand people there and we gathered in the Queen Elizabeth Stadium for uh, Service of the Lord's Supper. We went across to Ocean Park for a big ballroom dinner um, with hundreds of people. And as I arrived at the dinner, I searched for my table. It was number 37. I made my way there. I had no idea of who was around, and I found myself surrounded at my table by people in purple shirts. Uh, that is not a comment on fashion. In case you don't know, that means that they were bishops. They were bishops, and I came to find out that these three bishops in particular had um, come to us from Myanmar. So these three bishops and their wives were with them from Myanmar and a a few others on the table, but no, they didn't have purple shirts, so I didn't make note of who they were. Just joking. Um, I, I only had a vague awareness that there had been some social unrest in Myanmar. I was embarrassingly underinformed in the conversation. I'll admit that. But when I asked how life and ministry were going in Myanmar, the first thing that the bishop said was, please pray for us. Please, would you pray for us? We need it. He explained that Christians are a minority in most parts of that country, and um, they are facing intense persecution. There's long been persecution in Myanmar, but in 2021, there was a a military coup there. And um, since that point, the, uh, the, the Christians have faced more persecution. The government has long promoted with propaganda the idea that if you're Burmese, you're Buddhist, And if you're not Buddhist, you're not really Burmese. And that has intensified the conflict. Since the military coup, um, thousands of churches I've read since I had this conversation have been burned to the ground. Christian homes and villages burned. Christian women raped. Christian pastors shot 2.5 million people have been displaced, 30,000 people have been killed. Not all of those will be Christians, but many of them will be. Church buildings are sometimes taken and used as bases for the military to fight in an area, and then when they leave, the the fighting moves on, they burn down the church. Christians are routinely falsely accused. They're convicted in the, the country's court system. In some places, they're economically discriminated against. So uh, the Buddhist majority will not hire them, will not do business with them, often because they're afraid of what it will do to their own businesses. So they steer clear of Christians. I didn't really know what to say when he was sharing some of these details with me. What what do you say to that? And so I, I said, well, hey, I've been preaching through Revelation in our church, and I've been telling the church that where Christians face persecution, where where martyrs' blood is shed, that is where the church advances. And, and have you found that, Bishop Clement? And he paused for a moment, and he said, "Yeah, yes, in some places, yeah." He said, "People have been becoming Christians throughout this conflict." And he said one of the reasons that people become Christians is because they see that Christians are patient. He said their homes are burned down, their communities are oppressed, they're forced to flee, and they patiently endure it. Rather than lashing out, rather than seeking vengeance, they're at peace, they carry on praying and worshiping together, even though giving up the faith would make life easier for them, they endure. And other people they, who are also suffering in those areas, they see that and they think, I want whatever they have. And they turn to Jesus. And in the days that followed, as I prepared for this sermon, I hadn't really prepared anything much on, on Monday, but as I prepared for chapter 13, I thought, you know, what a blessing from God, because most of us, we read these things about war and violence and conflict and in the spiritual realm, and it, fe- see, it feels very distant to our experience. But here were six witnesses that say, no, this is the reality in our war zone. Satan and his servants fight like hell, and it costs Burmese Christians their lives and their livelihoods, but they do not love their lives so much as to shrink from dead. Their patient endurance through persecution is a witness that brings other people to salvation in Christ. How do they keep going? They have, in the words of our passage, verse 9, ears to hear. Burmese Christians have ears to hear. So, last week, chapter 12, we saw that by his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ has decisively defeated Satan. The victory has been won. Satan's been hurled down out of heaven, we were told. He no longer has authority to accuse God's people. But he's not yet destroyed. He's defeated, but not destroyed. He rages all the more on the earth, we read. And knowing that his time is short, he rages all the more. He violently pursues the church. He spews lies and accusations at the church. But God protects his people. That was the big picture. That was chapter 12. And now, chapter 13 fills in a little bit of the detail in the big picture. Because it shows us precisely how the devil wages war against the church on earth. And we see in this chapter, he calls forth his allies these two beasts from the sea, uh, one from the sea, one from the land. And this morning I want you to see who these beasts are so that you too will have ears to hear and be able to show patient endurance, faithfulness, and wisdom. There are some notes, uh, some room for notes on page 7 of your handouts and the first heading there is that Satan corrupts the state to make it hostile to true Christian witness. That's his key strategy. One of the reasons that we can so clearly identify this first beast that arises out of the sea as the state is because John is intentionally alluding to the Old Testament prophet Daniel from Daniel chapter 7. And the four beasts in Daniel's vision there. Actually, why don't we keep a finger in Revelation 13, but turn back to Daniel 7. If you have a church Bible, that is page 631. Page 631. In Daniel's vision, we're told about four beasts, actually, that arise out of the sea. And we're told they represent four kingdoms. The first beast, in verse 4 of Daniel 7, looks like a lion. The second beast, verse 5, looks like a bear. The third beast, verse 6, looks like a leopard. And we read in Revelation 13, that this beast from the sea resembles a leopard, has feet like a bear, and mouth like a lion. So you see he's drawing on the picture. But then Daniel, he goes to the fourth beast, which he describes like this, chapter 7, verse 7. There before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and had ten horns. Down to verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words. The horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. And we skip down to verse 21. And he says, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. So you see, there is a resemblance between Daniel's fourth beast and the sea beast of Revelation. There's ten horns. He speaks boastfully and blasphemous words. He looks like he was slain, and he wages war against God's people. It's clearly related. And in Daniel's vision, these four beasts symbolize four kingdoms, four empires. The first, Babylonia. The second, the Medes and the Persians, who uh, kind of overthrew the Babylonian Empire. Then the third beast is the Hellenistic Empire, the Greeks, who kind of overthrew the Medes and the Persians. And then the fourth beast, more terrifying than all of them, well, Christians in John's day would have immediately understood that to be the Roman Empire, who overthrew the the Hellenistic Empire. But back in Revelation 13, you can turn back there now, we'll stay there for the remainder. John's vision of the beast from the sea is Daniel's fourth beast, but... You can see it's more than just the fourth beast because it shares these characteristics with the first three. It's a combination of all the beasts rolled into one. So it's Rome, but it's more than Rome. It symbolizes every state, every society where the devil's corrupting influence has caused hostility towards true Christian witness. So it's Rome but it's also the Ottoman Empire. It's also revolutionary France. It's also various communist regimes around the world in the last century. Everywhere where we see political power of the state being used to persecute Christians is a manifestation of this beast that Satan calls forth from the sea. Now, we do have to be careful here because we know that Christians are not anarchists. Christians don't believe that every governmental authority is evil. Jesus says, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. Paul writes that God has established governmental authority and given them power to wield the sword for our good, so we should obey them. Peter says much the same. He insists that Christians need to honor the emperor who is there to reward good and punish evil. And Jesus, Paul, Peter, they're all writing under the Roman Empire. And so, on the one hand, God has given us governmental authority for our good. Christians should obey it. But, as he always does, Satan takes something good and he twists it. And he uses it for evil. And often throughout history, Satan's influence is seen where rulers begin to reward evil and punish good. They see Christians trying to just live out normal Christian lives, and they say, We've got to crush that. And that's when the state becomes beastly. And we see, as Satan influences the socio political institutions, that they are never satisfied. The state is never satisfied to merely open. God when it becomes beastly instead it wants to set itself up as God they always push further always seek to establish themselves as the object of counterfeit worship chapter 13 of Revelation verse 2 the dragon gave the beast its power and its throne and great authority one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound But the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. The same word used in chapter 5 to describe the lamb who looked as though he was slain is here used in verse 3 for the beast with a fatal wound is the the beast who looks as though he is slain. Christ was a lamb brought to life, brought back to life. The beast is slain, yet he appears to live on. The beast is actually a counterfeit Christ. Whereas Christ looks slain, but rose and will now reign for all eternity, forever and ever, we read. The beast looks slain, looks like he rules the world, though. Sorry, the beast looks like he rules the world. He's actually slain. He will be destroyed forever and ever. So, they've both been, they look as though slain. One is going to rule forever. One is going to be defeated forever. The beast is a counterfeit Christ. All God's enemies were defeated in precisely the same moment that the dragon was defeated, at the cross of Christ. And one day, the dragon and all his accomplices are going to be thrown into the abyss. But for the moment, the whole world, that is unbelieving humanity, that is the inhabitants of the earth, as we've seen them called in previous weeks, they're all deceived. They see Christ die and come back to life, and they say, that's a lie. I don't buy that. They see the beast defeated and live on, and they worship, they bow down. They say, oh yes, surely this is the one that we've been waiting for. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. In the time when Revelation was written, Roman emperors had come to establish an imperial cult they had called themselves gods in, in the tradition of the Babylonian emperors, the, the Persian emperors, the Greek ones. Now the Romans began to call themselves gods, especially in the eastern regions of the empire, like Asia Minor, where Revelation is written to the seven churches. And actually, the seven churches, the cities that they were in, we know at least five of them were centers for emperor worship cults. They had temples to the emperor. Worshipping the emperor was seen as a sign of loyalty to the empire. And it was seen as a way of uh, be, being um, showing cohesion with society. We're in this together. We worship the emperor together. Refusing to worship or participate in idolatrous feasts would mark you as a traitor and a troublemaker. Because Christians refused to worship the emperor or the local pagan gods, they were identifiable, easily identifiable for persecution. And we read in verse 6, we see Satan at work, where the, the state begins to blaspheme God and to slander Christians. Remember, that is his favorite tactic, deceit accusation. In Rome, they began to spread lies about Christians, that the the Christian love feasts are actually orgies. They began to say that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship the emperor or the other pagan gods. They didn't have any statues. These are atheists. They claim that Christians were incestuous because they called each other brother and sister, even married couples. Brother and sister. They said Christians drink blood in the Eucharist. And all those satanic lies that were brought against the church of the day, they made it so much easier for the state to say, we've got to wipe these people out. Don't you agree? Can't you see how evil they are? And they deceive the inhabitants of the earth. They applaud the beast as he wipes out the church, God's people. And you know we don't have to look very far to see the same happening all over the world today. We talked about Myanmar; it, it's happening there. In Islamic countries under Sharia law, Christians are routinely accused of blasphemy against Muhammad or the the Quran, and without. Any evidence, anything hard to convict them on, they're imprisoned. They're subjected to vigilante justice. They're killed. Nothing happens to those who kill them. Communist dictatorships accuse Christians of being dangerous traitors to the state in allegiance to the West. Secular governments in in the West, they accuse Christians of hate speech for affirming what Christians have always and everywhere affirmed. And with each instance, non Christian society scoffs at Christians and they applaud the state, saying, Yeah, you tell them. Who is like our beast? who is like our enlightened perspective. Only someone worthy of punishment would refuse to worship him like we do. Now, if that is Satan's tactic against Christians, how should we respond? Should we wage war against the attacks by subverting the state? Should we be subversive little cells? Should we establish our own little enclaves so we we flee the beast, we go set up our own little civilization away from the blasphemy? Well, actually, that's not what John tells us to do. His application is that we need to be like the Burmese Christians. Verses 9 to 10. We should recognize the beastly, satanic state for what it is when it persecutes Christians. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. We should, be persu- we, sorry, we should not be persuaded by persecution but should submit ourselves to punishment for our faith if necessary. Knowing that God is sovereign, I, I think that's what we make of verse 10. If anyone's to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. Submit yourself to punishment for your faith, if that's what it takes. And we should endure. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now, that is our directive. That is how Christ will conquer. That is how the beast and the dragon will only have a short time left. We've been told a few times in these chapters, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. The point is, it's limited. All symbolic numbers pointing to the fact that The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. But in the meantime, Christians have got to be prepared to endure heavy casualties. That's what will happen to us. We've got to be prepared to endure. And the way to endure is to trust the God who is guiding history, as we've been seeing so many times over the past weeks. That's how the Burmese do it. That's the first beast. The second beast shows us that Satan corrupts religion to make cultures and institutions hostile to Christian witness. First beast is a perversion of the state. The second beast is a perversion of religion, of true worship. In fact, you you might just think about the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast as a sort of unholy trinity. So Satan gives the state all authority in heaven and on earth. Not in heaven, actually, on earth. Over every tribe and nation and tongue to pressure them into joining in with his blasphemy. It will be easier for you if you worship the state than it will be if you worship Jesus. Satan wants you to know that. And then false religion comes along, false ideologies come along, and they testify to the satanic authority. They seal our thoughts and our actions, if we're in the unbelieving world, with the mark of the beast. You see, it's a, a satanic parody of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice first that false religion is deceptive. Ideologies are deceptive. We already know from an earlier, revela- uh, earlier part of Revelation that Jesus is symbolically referred to as a lamb who was slain. But now we meet another lamb. Then I saw, verse 11, A second beast coming out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke with the voice of the dragon. You've heard of a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is a dragon in sheep's clothing. It's something that looks a little bit like Jesus. This could be our savior. This one could bring us all together. But when it speaks, it's the devil's voice. This is a perversion of religion, the false prophets of a culture that advanced the devil's agenda. And how does Satan use them? Verse 12, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven on the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth, that is, the unbelieving world. So Satan gives false religions, ideologies, real power. You could really conquer a land with a false belief. You can really develop technologies, amazing technologies, with a false ideology. They can be the organizing principle of a society. They can bring us all together if we all just buy into this falsehood. But they are lies that Satan uses to lead people to destruction. Now what this vision is showing us is that Satan is... Really, very happy for people to be religious. In fact, he encourages it. Be a zealous believer, he says. Have some spiritual practices. Explore that feeling of transcendence that you get from art. He's perfectly happy for everyone on earth to be on a spiritual journey. And interested in religion. As long as it doesn't lead them to worship Jesus Christ. Then it's great. So if you get a sense of transcendence from the arts. Go for it he says. If you feel spiritually alive in political activism. He's happy for you. If your soul is fulfilled, completely fulfilled by family life, more power to you, he says. Satan empowers false religion to perform all kinds of great signs and wonders so that we will be satisfied to worship something human, something man-made, rather than Jesus. And very often Satan has his greatest success in getting people to worship the state For what else can command that kind of loyalty and that kind of sacrifice from people? It's just patriotic. The Buddhist nationalists in Myanmar drive the persecution of Christians. In parts of India, Hindu nationalists do the same. They're not one of us. If they were Hindus, they would be one of us, but they're foreign. Communist ideologies justify revolutionary violence and oppression by the state. I think it's interesting that during World War II, if you know anything about um, the the German and the Japanese regimes of that time, they both reverted to a kind of emperor worship. The Nazis promoted what they called positive Christianity. means we get rid of all the supernatural elements and we... We get rid of the idea that Jesus is divine, and we actually see that the, the Nazi ideology is what's leading us forward into the new millennium, the third Reich. The Japanese, they worshipped Emperor Hirohito as a god. They they gladly sacrificed themselves to defend him and the the, the land he represented. They gladly sacrifice their families to bolster the war effort. And those are points where we very clearly hear the dragon's voice. But it's often much more subtle than that. But whether it's obvious or subtle, Satan's goal is that false religion and ideology will capture a society... Will bring its institutions and its culture under his control to such an extent that anybody who dissents will suffer. That's what the mark of the beast is about. So, John, he saw this vision earlier in Revelation of all Christians being sealed by God, God's mark put on their forehead. And now he sees a vision of all the inhabitants of the earth being sealed with the mark of the beast. The second beast, verse 15, was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their forehead, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. And we see a little later, the number is 666. Seven is the number of completion and perfection. It's come up time and again in Revelation, and uh, we've seen that. And since God is Trinity, there's often this threefold sense with him. He's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. And so in the numeric logic of revelation God would be 777. But 6 falls short of 7. And 6 elevated to this sort of threefold trinitarian place, this unholy trinity, well in the symbolic re- symbolic logic of revelation the thoughts that is the forehead And the actions of the inhabitants of the earth, that is the right hands, are made subject to the dragon and his beasts. There's no more a physical mark of the beast than there is a physical mark of being sealed by by God. That's not the point here. So all the, the wild conspiracies about barcodes and injections and so forth are... Really, not anything we need to bother with. It's a symbolic picture of a spiritual reality that there are two types of people in the world those who belong to God, the ones who've been marked by the blood of the Lamb, the ones who will be ultimately delivered from the devil and his schemes, and those who belong to the devil the ones who go along with the kingdom of this earth, who worship the beast, who indulge in the the false worship. In short, the devil rages, and those who join him in the short term will have an easier time of things. But his time is short. His end is destruction. So, Christians need wisdom. That's John's application. We need wisdom so that we will not be deceived by the great deceiver. God will protect his church. We don't need to fear, but he calls us to be wise. So, let me challenge you as we end how are you growing in wisdom? Are you trying to grow in wisdom? Because if you're not, you will be very easily deceived. You see it in supposedly Christian churches around the world, absorbing the false ideologies of the culture around them and saying this is what right worship looks like. Get on board, everyone. Come all and bow before the beast with us. I don't even... I think, need to point to specific examples. We see it in the West. We see it in dictatorships in the the East. Those who become complicit with the beast, they they lack wisdom. How are you growing in wisdom? Are you studying the scriptures? When's the last time you read a, a book to help you understand something more of who God is? Something more about what He would have you do. Are you engaged in prayer? You need wisdom so that you won't be deceived. And you will be able to patiently and faithfully endure if you trust God. We have nothing to fear from Satan. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are utterly safe in your hands if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That in a world that's raging, nations raging and and the the dragon behind them pushing them to the brink. We see that that will likely lead us to suffer. We pray that you would restrain the hand of the beast in the places where we live. That you would protect your people even in the short term. But Lord, please, uh, if it is your will... That some should go into captivity here. That some should be slain here. That your grace will be sufficient for that as well. Please help us to trust you, come what may, and to persevere in service of the Lamb who is slain. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.